0: It is November 10th, 1938. It's in a small city in Germany. It's the night after Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass that ushered in the mass roundups and the killings that would become the Holocaust. There are a group of men shoved together in a cell, and they're all of different ages. And one of them turns to a much younger man, a rabbinical student who was, at that time, no more than 20 years old. You! You are a rabbinical student. You're a student of Judaism. So tell us, what does Judaism have to say to us at a time like this? Now, the recipient of that question was a young man named Emil Fackenheim. He would survive, and he would become one of the greatest Jewish thinkers of our time, largely because he spent the rest of his life trying to come up with an answer to that question. What does Judaism have to say to us at a time like this? From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. And I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin. With us today is Liel Leibovitz. Liel is an Israeli journalist, an author, a media critic. He is a scholar of video games. He's a prolific writer, mostly for Tablet Magazine, and I have been a fan of his work for years. And today we're going to ask him that question that was posed 85 years ago. What does Judaism have to say to us at a time like this? Liel, welcome. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. And what a way to start a conversation between two Jews than the day after Kristallnacht. It just rolls off the tongue. Isn't it the way you have generally started every conversation you've had. You know what?
1: I like to start every conversation I have by telling everyone my absolute favorite joke, which I think is is also the, the greatest kind of theological statement that Judaism has produced in a very long time. And it's a joke about another Holocaust survivor, not Emil Fackenheim, but uh, the one and only Elie Wiesel.
0: He was the funniest of them all, wasn't he?
1: So I believe. And so the joke goes that uh, Elie Wiesel, once he's, you know, passed goes, of course, to heaven, and he meets Hashem. He meets the Maker. And Elie Wiesel, even a man of his stature, is you know profoundly kind of shaken at the thought of finally standing you know, face-to-face with God. And so he doesn't know what to do. And so he decides that the first thing that comes to his mind is to tell God his favorite Holocaust joke. And so Elie <laughs> Wiesel tells God his favorite Holocaust joke. And God is not laughing. So Elie Wiesel said, God, I'm sorry. Did you not find my Holocaust joke funny? And God says, no, Elie, I found it very distasteful. And Elie Wiesel says to God, well,
0: I guess you had to be there. Which leads us to a really large question. Let's jumpstart the question and ask for you, where was God during the Holocaust? But now let's zero in on something else here. Where was God on October 7th? People are asking me that all the time. How happy am I that, unlike you, I've made some bad life decisions and
1: I do not have the title rabbi affixed to my name. And so I could get away, probably, by saying that, A, I am way too sober to answer this question. We're recording at one twelve p.m., which is not what I usually talk about
0: you know, the Odyssey. Just footnote: the Odyssey means the justification of God's actions. It's also, you know, the whole when bad things happen to good people thing. Back <laughs> which, to you, Leo.
1: Which, which we think about four times an hour as good card-carrying Jews. I would rather focus, since you know, I've spent the last uh, several years of my life thinking and, and obsessing about the Talmud. I would rather take a, a Talmudic way out of this. I'll start by telling another story, which is arguably the most famous story in the Talmud. Which at this point. I take it that most of your listeners know, but it's a story of a bunch of rabbis who are sitting and having an argument. And uh, Rabbi Eliezer believed one thing, and literally every single rabbi believed something else. And so Rabbi Eliezer says, "Well, you know, if I'm correct, let this tree here uproot itself, do a little jig, run five, you know, feet down the down the line, and replant itself." Rabbi Eliezer's not even done talking. The tree gets up, uproots itself, does a jig, you know, replants itself. Rabbi Eliezer says, "You see, I'm correct." And the other rabbis say, I'm sorry, but that's a tree. A tree doesn't get to decide halakha. That's, you know, up to us rabbis. And so Rebbe gets frustrated and says, well, you know, if I'm right, let the um, river change the course of its flow. And he's not even done talking, and the river changes the course of its flow. And he says, you see, I'm correct. And the other rabbi says, that's just a river. A river doesn't get to decide halakha. That's up to us rabbis. And so this goes on and on and on and on until Rebbe had enough. And he says, you know what, if I'm correct, I would like God himself to speak out from heaven and say so. And he's not even done talking when there's a voice comes out from heaven and says, no, where Eliezer is right. And the other rabbis look up at the heavens and say, I'm sorry. Maybe up there, God, you get to call the shots. But down here, it's our turf. And the Talmudic story concludes that a few days later, God runs into the prophet Elijah and says, I have met my children And they have bested me. God is delighting in the fact that this question of where was God? Where is God in everyday affairs and the affairs of man? It's actually a question that, weirdly, we are, while obsessed with, very comfortable with saying, I'm sorry, we we understand that God works in very mysterious ways. We understand that his aims and goals and designs are uh, far beyond and above our capabilities. Uh, We also understand that our main goal here on earth is not sitting and shaking our fist at the sky and saying, where are you? But rather it is to try and design a world, a life, a formation that is just
0: and just right for us. Which brings us to the topic of your new book, which I've just read and have loved. Thank you. How the Talmud Can Change Your Life. Surprisingly modern advice from a very old book. And we're just going to the October 7th moment here, Liel. You're right. Like so many Jews... I've spent the last few weeks drowning in a torrent of terrors. The reports from Israel documenting the worst single-day massacre of Jews since Hitler's goons were stopped are soul-crushing. And you're right that these stories are haunting you. They're making it difficult for you to go about your day. And it doesn't help much to step out in your own city, which is New York, and to see pro-Hamas mobs with swastika signs and calling for the destruction of the world's only Jewish state. But you go on to say that the Talmud – is a wonderful way of getting you and anyone perhaps through tough times. All right. Like I'm five years old, which by the way, in terms of Talmud, I am. <laughs> no, seriously, of all the rabbinic texts that I studied in my career, I just didn't do well with the Talmud. I don't have I don't have the mind for the lore, the Agada, the poetry, the stories, the narrative. Oh, I'm great at that. The legal stuff, there's probably a reason why I didn't go to law school. Okay, please tell us, what's the Talmud?
1: The Talmud uh, is the 2,711 page 63 tractate collection of rabbinic thought and wisdom incorporating the oral law, which we believe was uh, given to Moses by God on Sinai. It is, as you noted a very peculiar collection of both agadah, or legends, stories, fables, tales, poetry, and also halacha or uh, attempts at uh, adjudicating and interpreting Jewish law. Being so long, so complicated, the page famously contains both text and commentary, uh, leading my dear friend, the writer Jonathan Rosen, to opine that the Talmud, in fact, was the precursor to the internet, having pioneered the notion of the hyperlink, the idea that you could look at the text and then look right to the right of the text and see a link, basically, a Rashi commentary, this commentary, that commentary. But more importantly, I make the audacious claim in my new book that the Talmud is the greatest self-help book ever written, which may sound like a strange thing for a text that is notoriously difficult. But I'd like, if you permit me, to to actually take this opportunity to, to speak specifically about October 7th and share a bit of wisdom that I think the Talmud has for us in this moment in time. May I? Please, I'm hoping you will. There's a story, again, a a quite famous one in the Talmud, that takes place on the eve of the destruction of the Temple. This is the year 70 AD. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who is the great rabbi of his time, is facing the impending doom of the Jewish people and asking himself, like so many people today, you know, what can we do? And so under a great duress and, and taking a great risk to his own life, he manages to snuggle himself out of Jerusalem, basically by pretending to be dead and getting into a coffin covered with rotten vegetables in order to emit a strong scent of decay. And when he escapes Jerusalem, he goes to see Vespasian, which back then is the Roman general in charge of the siege, but very soon thereafter will become the Roman emperor. And because Rabbi Yochanan bin Zakkai is such a well-received and celebrated scholar and wise man, the Roman general says, okay, you know, well, ask me anything. Now, you may think, had it been me, a much, much simpler, dumber guy, uh, you may think that the obvious thing to do under circumstances such as these is to say, hey, dude, can you please not burn down the temple? Can you just spare Jerusalem and leave us alone? But Rabbi Ochanan ben Zekai understands that you can't do that. You can't ask the world not to turn. You can't ask the Roman general not to do what the Roman general was designed to do. You can't you know, stand athwart history and yell, stop. So instead, he asks Vespasian for three things. And his asks, I firmly believe, are an unbelievable guide to us right now because they teach us three lessons on what to do when catastrophe strikes that I think are so incredibly pertinent right now. The first thing that he asks for is for the permission to take a bunch of scholars and move them from Jerusalem to the city of Yavne, a city in central Israel, which was already kind of a a hotbed of Torah learning. Now, this is not just a um, practical request. It's a request that is rooted in an admission that Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life for so many years, the beating heart of Judaism itself, the home of the temple, is about to be destroyed. And the recognition that while we cannot save this city, while we cannot save the temple, while we cannot save the institution, we could still save the reason behind it. We could still save Torah learning. We could still save Judaism. Now, think about what a profound insight that is. So many of us uh, are looking right now at our alma maters, at the universities we went to or that our kids go to, at the newspapers that we used to read every morning, at the cities that used to feel so safe and welcoming to us. And we ask ourselves, what happened? You know, how did Harvard turn into a den of anti-Semitism? How is New York now home to almost daily pro-Hamas demonstrations? Why is the New York Times so often just spewing, you know, Hamas propaganda. It's kind of astonishing to us that these institutions that we loved and depended on should fall. But Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Zakai is teaching us the lesson of the hour. He says the institution may fall. The university may be lost. The town square may be lost. The newspaper may be lost. But this hope, the thing that we do, education, journalism, civility those could go on elsewhere you could pick up and you could move you could abandon even jerusalem even the temple even the holy of the holies you could always start again elsewhere because you could always commit yourself to the same task in a different place which is an incredible insight that would have been enough diana but then he has a second understanding the understanding that if he simply said okay guys jerusalem is over it's done it's burning So now we take Judaism and it's no more temple. And from now on, we'll just do it a different way in Yavne. People would say what people always say in times of change. They'll say something like, "Ah, I like the old place better. Old place had better decor, had better service, had better food, better smell, all those sacrifices on the altar. I don't like this new thing. It's just not the same. It's not authentic. This is how we do it as humans. So he makes a second request. He says, I would like the family of Rabban Gamliel, who is the grandson of the great Rabbi Hillel and considered to be the head of the Jewish community at the time. He said, I want these guys, that family, the Kennedys of Talmudic times to be spared because he understands that people, while they could move on and start again elsewhere and recommit themselves to the principle under different management, they still need some tie to tradition. They still need to be rooted in the past. They still need to feel that some ember of the past was preserved. And therefore, this rabbinic family, this old dynasty, was so important to him. Do something new, but also rooted in the past. What a one-two punch. That, again, would have been enough. But he saved, Rabbi Yochanan ben Sakai, saved the best for last. Because he had a third teaching. That was the absolute most important one of them all and the best guide, practical guide for all of us wondering what to do today. He asked Vespasian, I have an old friend. His name is Rabbi Saduk. He's an old righteous man and he's so heartbroken about what's going on that he stopped eating. He's very sick. He's about to die. I want you to send a doctor and heal Rabbi Saduk. Which when you think about it, is insane. What an indulgent thing to say. The hundreds of thousands of people are about to die. Jerusalem is under siege. The temple is about to burn. And you worry about one old, hungry, starving, ailing, old Jewish man? And the answer that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai gives us is precisely yes. Because it is not your job to save the Jewish people. It is not your job to save America. It is not your job to save Israel or the Jewish community or anything of that elk. It's your job to reach across the street or down the block and find one person who is ailing, who is having a tough time, who is struggling, and reach out to that person and make sure they're okay. Because the Talmud teaches us in one of our one of its best selling insights, that he who saves one life, it's as if they saved a world entire. And I think right now, when so many of us are waking up in the morning asking what to do, it's just these three rules. A, remember that whatever institutions we've lost, we could always start anew. B, remember that as we're starting anew, the best way to go about it is rooting ourselves in tradition. And C, if you're asking for practically, what do I do tomorrow morning?
0: It's very easy. Find one person who actually really needs your help and help them. It's an amazing exposition. And of course, the story that you told, the story of Yavna, the story of the escape of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, is a story that I write about in my new book, Tikkun Ha'am, Repairing Our People, Israel and the Crisis of Liberal Judaism, because it's the story really of what it means to be resilient. You know, Liel, I'm going to take you back to an earlier literary moment of yours, and it's how I first really connected with you, and it's really how I became such a fan of yours, though we disagree on certain things, which by the way is insanely Jewish. Anyway, I was about to say, I'd be worried if he didn't. No, I was really taken initially by your work because you and I share a love of Leonard Cohen and your book, a broken hallelujah, rock and roll redemption and the life of Leonard Cohen really, really played a very important part in my Cohen education. And, Leonard Cohen himself, writing about the Talmud, has said that the Talmud is a manual for living with defeat. It's a book about what to do when everything seems broken and how to think about life when little about it makes sense.
1: You know, Leonard was, as his last name implied, truly a Cohen, truly, truly a priestly figure. I was very privileged to not only write about him, but also get to know him and befriend him. In the last years of his life, his loss, which also came at a very dark moment in American public life.
0: It's nice to hear you say that.
1: He passed two days before the 2016 election. Let me backtrack here, because this is kind of the, the, the origin story, if you will, of why I got involved in Talmud to begin with. Because um, I was turning 40 on November 9th, 2016, and so figured out in you know typical audacious fashion that I'm going to greet my pending mortality by performing some feat of strength and decided several months before my birthday that I'm going to run the New York City Marathon. And so train, train, train. And a few days before the race, I sent Leonard a note and said, look, man, your music isn't the best workout music in the world. It's not exactly what you go to the gym with. But when you have to run 26.2 miles, you better bet that I'm crossing that finish line listening to your music. And he sends back the nicest, sweetest, most grandfatherly note saying, you know, don't be a hero. It's okay not to finish. Don't do anything crazy. We're still proud of you. And signs it, chazak, chazak, v'nit chazak. Strong, strong, and we shall grow stronger. And here I am on the streets of New York, uh, feeling a feeling of absolute elation because New Yorkers of all shapes, sizes beliefs, races, convictions are all coming out together to cheer on the runners and, and support each other. And, and I just had this great sense that everything's going to be okay with the country. And at some point around mile 14, I hear a click and I pay it no attention until about four and a half seconds later, at which point I feel the most intense pain I have ever felt in my life. And I sort of make my way to the uh, medic tent, which thankfully was just a few hundred yards away, and present my condition and say, Well, you know, must have torn or strained something. You know, here's the van, it will carry you wherever you want to go. And uh, know, yeah, hey, thanks for coming. And I stupidly say, Well, does that mean I don't get to finish the race? And the guy there says, Are you dumb? Yes, of course it means that. Like your race is over. There's 12 point two more miles to go. And I say, um, okay, well, you know, I promised my children that they will see me at the finish line. So I intend to keep that promise. Thank you and goodbye. And the medic said, look, I can't legally stop you from making a terrible mistake, but go ahead. And so I run the rest of the race. And I, I mean run in the most generous term because I really kind of like wobble and, and hobble over to the finishing line. I, I finished this race in something like 7.2 hours. Like people were already, you know, Having dinner, having you know, flown to France for a brief vacation, you know, making a short film. By the time I finished this race, people are already like half a lifetime done with it. But I finished the race listening to Leonard and really felt incredibly moved. And was supposed to go see him a few weeks later. That was Sunday. Monday, unbeknownst to anyone, Leonard passed quietly in his home. Tuesday was that fateful election, and I woke up on Wednesday, which was my birthday. Feeling like so many of us, uh, like the world, if not ended, uh, definitely turned a much darker corner, a much darker page, and things were definitely not what I thought they were. And America was not what I thought it was. And it was just a very kind of gloomy day. So on Thursday, my wife says, "You've had a heck of a week. The country's had a heck of a week. Let's go out to our favorite restaurant and you know have a martini, which I absolutely adore, and kind of get over it." And no sooner do I lift the drink to my lips then the phone dings and Leonard's manager texts to say, I'm so sorry to inform you. He passed away on Monday and the family asked that we only let people know now. At which point I felt like everything was broken. My body was broken. The country was broken. Leonard was gone. I, I needed, as, as he so famously put it, a manual for living with defeat. I needed some guide to help me not just, you know, find short bursts of optimism followed by long sweeps of darkness and despair, but something that would allow me to very soberly look at this shattered reality and start building anew. And there's simply nothing like the tumble because it forces you. Part part of its charm is its difficulty. It forces you to do it at every turn. It forces you to put the world back together again.
0: We'll be right back. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was gonna have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We're back, friends. Welcome back to Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, I'm Rabbi Jeff Salkin. We have Liel Leibovitz with us, the prolific journalist and writer. We are talking about his new book, uh, which is a wonderful explanation of how the Talmud can change your life, surprisingly modern advice from a very old book. I want to kind of drill down at the notion of when Leonard died and the time in American life when that happened. I've been encountering your work for a long time, and I can't say it's created any fender benders between us because I identify myself as a radical centrist. Someone once said to me, though, the problem with being in the middle of the road is that you get hit by cars going in both directions.
1: That's correct, yes.
0: (laughs) And I think that October 7th has nudged me a little bit closer to the center. I really live a kind of schizophrenic life. I've been critical of the progressive left because of its abandonment of the Jews in a time of need. When we have so much street cred in terms of fighting those battles, it's another conversation. Leo, you've uh, moved to the right over the years, haven't you, politically? You know... Like every good narcissist, let me say that I have not moved at all. That's the world
1: that's moved around me.
0: Okay, touche. I feel the same uh, way.
1: Which is what every self-important person says. But I feel a, a bunch of of kind of the the strangest of my politics, and I think of of yours too, is basically insisting it's not so much a centrism as it is something much more profound and much more Jewish, which is outsiderism. You know, from, from Moses to Joey Ramon, we have been the ones standing outside of society saying like, we don't play by these rules because these rules are stupid.
0: Abraham, man, it starts with Abraham.
1: Hallelujah, even better. You know, that is is what we do. And we, you know, observe, but we are not connected or attached so much to these, you know, institutions like political ideologies or parties as we are to a much higher set of of callings, ideas, and ideals. The problem is, I think there's a great big public health crisis afflicting American Jews, uh, which is an addiction to prestige and to validation. This notion that unless I'm a member of good standing of this polite society because I go to this school or earn this much money or belong to this corporation or read this newspaper, then I'm not a person of any stature. I simply don't care. If we're talking about Donald Trump, I, from the very beginning, watched with amazement the rise of Donald Trump. I regarded him then and regard him now, not as a person, but as a plague, a literal plague. God used to send, you know, frogs and hail and darkness and pestilence. Now he sent us the man from Mar-a-Lago to teach us uh, that we should mend our ways. It is no more sensible to rail at him as it is to look at the sky and say, frogs, stop falling it is much more sensible to say, okay, well, what can we do to change the condition that made this affliction, this punishment appear? And the answer isn't, well, we ought to go deeply partisan. The answer is we ought to listen to all the things that are broken, admit their brokenness, and start building anew, which isn't a work that's done by political brinksmanship, by by partisan hyper-loyalty, by dumb gotcha journalism, by any of the things that we start so much that we set so much star by right now. It's a totally different and, again, very Jewish way of looking at the world, just saying, okay, what needs repairing here? And then doing it however and with whoever is up to the task.
0: So the question I have is, to what extent can the Talmudic way of reasoning and thinking, and by the way, I'm going to need to ask you right after this, about the Talmud's own history of being the victim of anti-Semitic abuse, like for example, just the word Talmudic itself, Liel, is kind of an insult. Mm. Before we get there, I want to just jump on the political conversation. Does Talmud contain a way for us to contain the political and moral and cultural disputes that are raging within our society and helping us maintain those voices in a saner and perhaps more healing way?
1: Yes, absolutely. In fact, if you're going to go and summarize the Talmud, by the way, even thinking about the Talmud as a book is somewhat preposterous. Jonathan Rosen, again, said that it is uh, better considered as a drift net for catching God. Uh, It is this magnificent instrument. But if you think about it as a book, and if you think that the book has a point, the point is simply this. It teaches us how to argue. In my book, I try to find modern stories to illustrate every single one of these points of of the Talmudic way of looking at the world. And and one of the things that are most important and central is the Talmudic concept of friendship, which was completely radically different than our own. The Talmud loved pairing rabbis up. Uh, In fact, institutionally, it did that for many, 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 many centuries. Uh, because it believed that friendship wasn't just two people saying, oh, I agree, oh, we're both so aligned in our commitment to, you know, John Fetterman or whatever. The Talmud understood that things progressed best when two people who had immense respect for each other and absolutely nothing else in common dedicated themselves to pointedly, energetically, and truly arguing, this is called Machloket l'shem shamayim, an argument for the sake of heaven, not to one-up one another and to win in order to destroy one another, and just as importantly, if not more so, not to convince one another, not to convert one another, not to concede the point, as you know modern spin doctors tell us to do whenever we find ourselves in an argument, but rather to sharpen the disagreements and get down to the source of of what we're actually talking about, to move away from these dumb rhetorical devices that we so often apply when trying to, you know, lord it over other people in conversation, and towards an an attempt at the conversation that actually gave, you know, true meaning and real depth uh, to the thing. The Talmud tells uh, several tragic stories of rabbis who took this principle so far that it ended in, you know, the mutual death of both because they simply kind of argued themselves to the point of, of non-existence. But to us, so accustomed to cancel culture, so accustomed to kind of writing off anyone who doesn't agree with us on even smallish things, so accustomed to approaching a conversation as basically an attempt at, you know, mutually assured destruction. I think the Talmud teaches a great lesson of engage in the conversation, not wanting to convert the other person or vanquish the other person, but simply understanding better the things that you're truly arguing about, which also help you truly better understand yourself.
0: There's that wonderful line, divrei Elohim Chaim. These and these mm-hmm. are the words right. of the living God. And I always thought it was interesting that it's the Elohim Chaim, it's the living God. Absolutely. That God lives because of the turbulence of our ideas. I mean, look, one of the stupidest and and most
1: searing thing about our time is that there are so many friendships lost. I I can attest to my own life. I'm sure it's true for you, and I'm sure it's true for so many people listening. People who just, you know, at some point felt like, oh, I can no longer be your friend because you support this candidate, because you voted for X, because you voted for Y. And so much of the political discourse is geared towards this, oh- all conservatives are X. All progressives are Y. Every leftist hates the Jews. Every you know conservative who voted for Trump is a fascist. It, it's it's so toxic and it's so caustic. And it's, again, so really goyish. That's not how we do things. And never
0: has been, never shall be. I've always thought that it would be saner. And nicer and more Jewish if when we encounter people whose ideas are reprehensible to us, by the way, within reason, there are some people I'm just not going to hang out with at any time. I'm not going to hang out with Hamas. I'm not going to hang out with the proud boys, but between those two places,
1: I was about to say people who believe you can make martinis with vodka.
0: This is a a heresy. I know It's a heresy. But the point is that I've always wondered what would happen if we asked those people, can you tell me how you got to your position? And the Talmud does that. Right. And then ask a million more questions. Like for every answer that you get, ask 99 questions
1: about it and really explore it. If nothing else, you'll understand, again, not just the other person, but yourself so much
0: better. So let me ask a question. Okay, back to the Talmud and the anti-Semitism and stuff like that. How does the Talmud itself, Leo, get to be the victim of anti-Semitism? How does this hatred focus itself on a book? And by the way, uniquely so. It's not until Kristallnacht that the Jews encounter the Nazis destroying the Torah and desecrating the Torah, torturing the Torah. But in the Middle Ages, the Talmud really was the target of that fury. What's up? What's up with that? Put on trial uh,
1: so frequently, accused of being, you know, the Jews' manual for deception. And look, to a point, you could absolutely understand what these persecuting Gentiles were, were up against. One of my favorite. Things is when I'm studying a particular, you know, sugya or a, a question, an issue in the Talmud, and someone would come up and say, like, "Hey, what are you reading?" And I would explain the, you know, question that the rabbis are discussing, and that person would say, "That's very interesting. What's the answer?" And I'd say, "The answer? Do you even go here? There is no answer. The point is exactly that there is no answer. The point is exactly to see the argument, the discussion. Very rarely does the Talmud give definitive answers to anything, which is such an important kind of distinction because that is truly the countercultural genius of Judaism. Look, as you can tell by looking at my white beard, I'm old enough to remember when you ordered something online and you got it within, say, a week, that was considered fast delivery. Then it was two-day shipping, then one-day shipping, then same-day shipping. Now in New York, there are places where You could get stuff in 15 minutes or less to your doorstep. And I think it's only a matter of time before Amazon just ships you stuff that you haven't even ordered yet because you already know what it is that you want. That's there. That's there. It's kind of a wonderful facility, fast, flat nature to it. But at the same time, it also flattens everything about life. It flattens those complicated layers of truth and beauty where where the complications lie, where the questions lie, where the difficulties lie that make life that much more wonderful, that much more human and that much more worth living. Our task as Jews and the, the Talmud's task as our great manual, right? Has always been to illuminate these difficulties, to focus never on the answers, always on the question. And from time immemorial, this bothered a lot of people because so much of quote unquote progress is about flatness, is about facility, it's about fastness, it's about getting from point A to point B and kind of, you know, just prevailing. The Talmud is here to tell us, not so fast, ask yourself more questions, find more problems, kind of delve on the things that really need to be delved on. It makes you slower, it makes you more pensive, but it makes you so much more human. And the term Talmudic itself. <laughs> Problematic. <laughs> yeah, what is that? Well, you know, this is is part of what we're still, I feel, fighting as you would still to this day very frequently hear people say, oh, you know, that's just Talmudic kind of meaning like, oh, you're just splitting hairs here. You're just kind of like arguing for the sake of arguing. You're just being annoying. I'll be very honest. Sometimes when I study a page that is particularly difficult, even I, great lover of the Talmud, could say like, guys, come on. You can't seriously, you old rabbis, seriously be sitting here and arguing over this question that is that is so ridiculous because the way the Talmud conducts its business so often is by rabbis, you know, hearing a general law and then doing their best to dream up whatever hypothetical they can, sometimes sublime, often ridiculous uh, cases to see whether or not the general ruling will stand. And sometimes the cases are so incredibly ridiculous. Like, oh, what if someone walks into another person's house and starts baking bread and then by accident, you know, burns down the house? Is she guilty of burning down the house? And I was like, how often does a complete random stranger walk into my apartment in the Upper West Side of Manhattan and start making sourdough? I mean, this is just, you know, kind of like silly. But once you kind of really dive deep deep down into this conversation, you understand that what they're trying to do is never let any kind of just general vagueness remain. Because when you have a general vague principle, you open the door for people to come and say, well, I interpret this to mean X. And now I could use this to lord it over you. Now I could use this to, you know, prosecute you. So what they're trying to do here is really very, very, very carefully ask every question that they can so that to make sure that their understanding of every standing question is as intricate and as deep as it could be. But also to warn people against the pleasures and the intoxicating joy of certainty which is something that we're so often given to feeling like, oh, I know what's right. I'm a good person because I put the sticker, you know, hate has no home here. I'm a good person because I recycle. I'm a good person because I fly the American flag and I don't, you know, hate America like those, you know, treacherous liberals. No, enough with that self-congratulatory, mind-numbing certainty. Spend a little bit more
0: time asking questions and a lot less time reveling in answers. And yet, Despite it all, or perhaps because of it all, Talmud study is totally crazy popular in this country. Let me just read an excerpt of what you wrote. On the first day of 2020, more than 90,000 people crammed into New Jersey's MetLife Stadium, home of the Giants and the Jets, to celebrate Siyum Hashas, a commemoration of finishing a seven-and-a-half-year cycle of reading Daf Yomi, or one of the Talmud's Two thousand seven hundred eleven pages each day. Present were bearded men in black hats and robes and young tattooed Brooklynites in denim and flannel. Old rabbis who perched each morning over large leather bound volumes and young women who tuned into one of the many Talmud podcasts. Jews and non-Jews alike who came to share the comfort they found in the world's most confounding maddening inspiring energizing and demanding book liel i don't think there's another text like this in the world that commands this kind of adulation is there no i really don't believe so
1: And this is why i keep returning to this you know preposterous sounding assertion that this is actually a self-help book because you know you always seek at times of darkness and want and a crisis you always seek some kind of instant solution. You always seek some kind of blueprint to elevate you from your predicament quickly. And the more you attempt these fad diets, this get-rich-quick schemes, those you know instant presto solutions, the more you realize that life is uh, is an intricate task of of building. Webs. By the way, it's it's incredible because the word masehta, the word for each one of the Talmudic tractates, literally means a web. Like the World Wide Web. Right, like the World Wide Web. Those are webs that we weave together painstakingly one kind of little bit at a time. And to do that, you don't need, you know, the rules like the name of that other very popular self-help book, or you don't need like, you know, how to lose 50 pounds without trying. What you need uh, is a different way of seeing the world, of thinking about the world, of being with the world that begins by affirming the notion that being in the world is primarily being with others, that being with others is a very demanding and sometimes uh, annoying task that involves a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of compromise and a lot of heartbreak, but also profound joy and profound satisfaction and profound connections And so to explore all these questions, how to be a better husband, how to be a better friend, how to mourn better, what to do when your body does disgusting, gross things, you have a book. You have the Talmud, which speaks about all of these
0: and more. Leo Leibovitz has been with us today. It's been a wonderful conversation with someone whom I've admired for quite some time. And his new book is How the Talmud Can Change Your Life surprisingly modern advice from a very old book. It's available on Amazon. And Leo, thanks for being with us. My absolute pleasure. I invite you all, please follow my regular column of the same name, Martini Judaism on Religion News Service, religionnews.com. Our producer is Jay Woodward, and we get production assistance from Julia Windham. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. I'm going to remind you all, Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, is available on Spotify, Google, Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. Just do us a favor, download our podcast, leave us a five-star rating. Many thanks, and we'll see you again soon. Shalom, everyone.